Today is Education Reform Sunday, and we are on sort of our third part of the journey we began three months ago when we focused on three issues that not just this year, but in the coming years will be issues that our church hope to be more engaged in. In March, we spent a little time talking about immigration and talked about how we as kingdom people could be involved in that. And, uh, oh, I have a, a prayer request this upcoming Tuesday, coming Tuesday, uh, some of you guys know the senator from Illinois, Senator Dick Durbin, and his staff or his aides have invited a handful of pastors into their office, I guess, downtown to talk about the issue of immigration. Okay. So uh, apparently I'm invited, so I'm going to be there. Uh, please pray. <laughs> please pray that I would not be my usual kind of you know, self, that I'd be respectful of the process, okay? And I don't want them to kick me out within first five minutes. So do pray for me, though, with wisdom, for wisdom and for discernment. Um, and also that God, the Holy Spirit, will be at work in that room that morning. 8.30 is when we're gathering. So I want to ask you to pray for that. And then in April, we spent some time talking about issue of housing and affordable housing as it affects this city, this community. And today, we have a special speaker that I will be interviewing. Her name is Sue Hong. And no, we are not related, although I guess if you go far back enough, you may be somewhere, right, in the, in the family tree. Um, but here's what I want to do. I want to take about five minutes to, to, to share with you guys the context of why this is important for us. At the center of who we are as a church is the gospel. And I want to put up the definition of the gospel as we in our church come to embrace it. The gospel is the good news that through Christ, the power of God's kingdom has entered history to renew the whole world. And when we believe and rely on Jesus' work and record for our relationship with God, the kingdom power comes upon us and begins to renew us. I need you to spend the entirety of your life, as I'm spending entirety of my life, meditating on what that means and fleshing that out and living that out in your life and my life, because that is the source and the answer to everything that ails us. Everything that we're talking about, you guys, fundamentally arises out of what we believe about the gospel. So let me tell you very clearly right now, we don't talk about this just because we want to be good people. There are a lot of really good people out there who don't know Jesus that do really good things. It's wonderful. Our motivation has to be that and beyond. Amen? Our motivation has to be that and the fact that we are gospel-believing, Jesus-loving people. But the definition of the gospel reminds us, you guys, that there isn't just this individual component where I receive Christ, become a good Christian, live a good moral life so that I can go to heaven. I say this in our church, and if it comes as a shock to some of you because you're visiting our church, come talk to me afterwards for more. Jesus Christ did not die for our sins so we can go to heaven. Jesus Christ died for our sins and rose again so that we could be forgiven of our sins, have a relationship with God, but also... To someday reign and with him as he comes to restore and renew all of creation. There is not just an individual, personal, private component, but a sociological, cosmic component to the gospel of Jesus Christ. This is the way the apostle Peter said it in 1 Peter chapter 2 verse 9 in terms of what this means. But you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation of people belonging to God, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. Let me read that again. But you are a chosen people, royal priesthood, a holy nation of people belonging to God, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. So check this out. Salvation and becoming a Christian isn't just about this individual component where we have a wonderful relationship with God and we wait until he comes so we can go to heaven. But there is this cosmic corporate component where he says, you, not just individual, that's plural, together as a believing community are to declare the praises of him, declare his kingdom rule, declare his kingdom reign. And we declare that in two ways. We declare that in two ways. One way is we declare it by becoming the embodiment of the kingdom. And we talk about why community is important, right? We declare that by saying to the watching world, hey, watch us as we do this countercultural living together. Watch us as we do this sort of community.
community think together, how we relate to each other, how we uh, treat money and sexuality, how we treat power. Watch us as we embody in our corporate life together on the truth of the kingdom and how we declare that. See, the mission statement, church, arises out of this. When we say we are a city within a city, we are literally saying part of our mission is for the watching world to look at this community, this people, this new society to say, watch how we do life together. See, in this community, we don't treat sex like the world does. We don't idolize it. We don't worship it as if it's end and be all. This community treats sex as a gift from God to be enjoyed in the context of marriage. So in that context also, in this community, and this is huge, chastity makes sense. Because we are the beloved community that reflects God's values Here's what I mean by that, okay? This is a little side side tangent, but if you expect singles in our church to be sexually pure just by being disciplined and I'm going to be good Christian, it's not going to work. The only way that we would challenge our singles in our church to be sexually pure is for them to be in a community where their singleness and their passion for Jesus and their desire to live out biblical values not only makes sense, but it's being encouraged by saying, we're with you. Does that make sense? So all we do in the church is, don't have sex, just have sex. That's not a biblical embodiment of the kingdom that encourages each other to live God in lives. Money. How do we treat money? Well, we're generous, radically generous in this embodiment community. We share it. And we look out for the marginalized, the poor, the immigrant. We're not paternalistic towards the poor. We radically share our resources because we don't find our identity significance in money and what we do and what we wear and what we drive. And power, there's radical power sharing. There's encouragement of all race, ethnicity, culture that's represented. Embodiment of the kingdom. Watching world says, wow, how do you guys do that? But there's a second component, and that is we don't just embody, but we demonstrate the kingdom. That is, we don't just watch us, you guys, world, but we go, we move out. Let me put it this way. We as a church don't exist so that our church would be great. And stop there. We exist as a church so that the city as a whole would be a great place. That was a beautiful song that they sang earlier because we are called to live out and to demonstrate characteristics of the kingdom of peace and of justice and of love. So we don't just huddle together and say, hey, everybody watch us, but we move out. We move out radically and we look for places where kingdom rule and reign. Where, is, where are places of injustice? How do I as a kingdom person address that issue of injustice? Where are places that lack love? How do I as a kingdom person enter into those spaces and places where there's lack of love and embody God's kingdom love? Where do I enter into places where there's lack of peace? And how do I engage my life in such a way that the peace of God, which is a part of the kingdom, would be seen? Church, the reason why we're talking about education today, not so that we just be good people, good Christians, good teachers, is so that we as a kingdom community would demonstrate in our various lives and spheres how the justice, peace, and love of God that is going to affect change in all of creation would be seen, particularly in today's, as we talk about it, in our schools and our educational system. Does that make sense? We are gospel-believing people. And gospel-believing people out there should clap to that and say, that's right. (laughs) Sue, come on up. Come on up. Sue Hong, let me introduce you to her. Church, this is Sue. Sue, that's the church, new community. I don't want to mess this up. Here's a little bio on Sue, okay? Sue is a uh, product of the East Coast. Were you born here or did you immigrate to this country? I immigrated. Okay, um, how old were you? I was two. You were two years old, okay. Um, Sue uh, grew up in the East Coast, uh, parts of Maryland and, and, and Baltimore. She graduated, yes, by the way, yeah. 
as I, as I list some of these things, if you, if you can, you know, that's where I'm from, that's what I'm about. You can clap, ooh, holler, whatever, okay? She graduated from University of Virginia, okay? East Coast person, okay? Uh, well, she also got her, 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 uh, her master's, and uh, her focus, obviously, was in teaching. After graduating, she worked for five years, both in Boston and also in Maryland, Tacoma Park, which she uh, says, just D.C. to people that don't know that area, Okay? After teaching for five years, um, driven by a certain passion that you'll hear about today, Sue went to Harvard. So she's a smarty pants, okay? She went to Harvard where she got her doctorate in education. And her focus of her thesis was what she'll talk about today because it directly impacts an organization here in Logan Square. Um, And you'll hear more about that today. Um, After graduating Harvard, she began just this year teaching at Wellesley. And her focus and emphasis in urban education and educational policy. So community organizing is a passion of Sue's, as well as teaching. And so we want to give her a warm welcome. New community welcome. Yeah. Okay. I figured, thank you so very much, Annie. Um, I figured those of you that are teachers out there... uh, you have uh, one of you among us this morning, and so I know you got a big smile on your faces, and, and I'm, I'm so encouraged and happy to be able to have Sue here, because I think what she has to share, particularly for teachers, is meaningful but for the rest of us as well. So Sue, welcome. Tell us a little bit about yourself. Where did you grow up? Tell us a little bit about your family, and so on and so forth. So I came to the States when I was two with my family from South Korea. And I spent all of my childhood in in Baltimore. And I went to school at the University of Virginia and actually went there to study architecture. I think from the time I was about 12 or 13, I had it in my mind that I wanted to be an architect. Um, And so I went to UVA to study architecture. And halfway through my program, I started volunteering in a classroom in Charlottesville. And I was working with... a a third grade student. I still remember her name. Her name was Lanny. And I worked in a classroom with this really wonderful teacher. So I was tutoring Lanny and working in the classroom. And I was only supposed to be there for about an hour and a half every week. And it started with an hour and then became two. Then I started spending the morning and all of Friday. And I really just fell in love with being in the classroom. And so I struggled with it because I was really interested and passionate about being an architect. So there was, it wasn't like I was looking for something else or I wanted a way out of that field. I really had a lot of devotion and love for it. Um, I think about myself as an artist, but also um, someone who can be mathematical (laughs) if I want to be. And so I just had a lot of excitement for architecture, but... I really feel as if I was moved during that year working with this young child and being in the classroom. Mm. I felt like I was feeling a greater purpose in in what I was being called to do. And so during that year, um, much to my parents' dismay, (laughs) I I left my architecture program and decided to become a teacher. Mm. And I've never, ever once regretted that decision. Um, Mm. It was just you know, a really wonderful way for me to understand how to learn about myself and also learn about the broader community and and really connect with young people in a way that really transform my life, I think, more than theirs. And and so, you know, I was was teaching, I was teaching in... um, you know, D.C. and then in, Bo- in Boston. And at the time, I really, you know, in the two schools that I, were, that I was teaching in, they were public schools, and the one in Boston was a public charter school. Both of those environments, I really struggled with how disconnected schools were from the families that they were serving. And I had to really find my own ways to engage with families. And, you know, sometimes that meant... You know, um, I I got into a practice of making sure that I had at least phone contact with every family by the end of the first month of school. And a lot of parents were really shocked to hear from me because when you call someone's house and say, hi, this is Miss Hong, Um, you know, may I speak to Deshaun's mother? 
there's this silence as her heart stops and wonders, <laughs> oh, what did he do? <laughs> and um, so parents, I, I worked in schools, I think, that aren't unusual. Um, they were just really, families weren't really part of school communities, ironically. Yeah. And so I really struggled with that, and I tried to find my own ways to kind of bridge some of those, those gaps. And so sometimes it meant, you know, going to my students' house and taking them to the library, having a meal with their family, mm. calling them regularly. And, um, but I was teaching in schools where that really wasn't the common practice, and so it was just like I was one person trying to make these inroads and connections. And then my students would go to another class and, and that connection wouldn't be there. And so I decided to take a break from teaching and go to grad school so that I could really think about some of those questions and see what other people were doing and, um, and thought that you know after doing some research and spending some time in grad school, I'd return to schools with some fresher and more innovative ideas about how we could really not just change individual teachers' classrooms, but transform whole schools mm. to do that. So that's, that's why I went to grad school. Mm. And then I guess I can say that I went, when I was in grad school, um, you know, I, I think if I look back on it, I think about my teaching, I think about myself as a teacher activist, though I wouldn't have really named it that at mm. that point. Um, and I really didn't have a firm backing or, or grounding in community organizing. But when I went to Harvard, I took a class with a professor, and it was a class on education organizing. So it was, we were studying community organizing groups that work on school issues and educational issues. And um, that was just really a transformational experience for me because it really brought together these issues around justice and around equity um, and around community empowerment. Mm. And while I was taking that class, this professor would follow a case approach to teaching. So each week we would study a different case. And halfway through the semester, I remember reading about the Logan Square Neighborhood Association. There was this case booklet that was written about them. And I remember reading that and just being completely moved by their story. And, um, you know, because they were an organization that was working with immigrant families and immigrant families in my own professional experience and personal experience, they're, they're, they have a special place in my heart. You know, I'm a, I'm a child of immigrants myself. Um, and I saw as a teacher that a lot of the issues around the disconnect between schools and family can be even more compounded when you have language and culture in play, too. So I learned about this group, and my advisor, uh, interestingly enough, had a connection to LSNA, the Logan Square Neighborhood Association. So I spent the past five, four years um, tra traveling to Chicago from Boston to study this group and um, wrote my dissertation um, and working on a book this summer that's been following their work. And um, I think through that experience, I've learned so much mm. about, you know, this neighborhood, but um, around, but also about the kinds of really transformative things that can happen when schools and community groups work together to um, take some of those issues that are ailing them head on. Yeah, yeah. And, and in a moment, we're going to actually have Nancy and, uh, and also another guest join us to talk more about specifically what the community is doing. Um, but Sue, backing up a little bit, just wanted to ask you, you know, um, how, does, how, how did your faith, how does your faith and your life as a Christian, as a follower of Jesus, impact and influence why you do what you do and where you do it? So I think if you had asked me that question a few years ago, I would have had a very different answer. Um, I think for most of my life, I saw, you know, my faith and my church-related and faith-related activity in one category of my life, mm -hmm. and I saw my professional work as a teacher in another category of my life. Mm -hmm. And and for years, I just really didn't understand how to bring them together. Mm. Um, but one important connection that I eventually began to see is that my life um, as a faithful servant is really shaped by a call to 
not only serve communities, but work with people to kind of to, to fight the injustices that are happening on a daily basis. And that's exactly the kind of frame that I use around my teaching, too. And so I think, you know, four or five years ago, I started understanding that those parts of my life, you know, because I think before I thought that bringing faith into work meant, you know, sharing the gospel Mm. and bringing people to church, Mm -hmm. and those things are certainly important. Mm -hmm. But I found that... um, so much of the values and mission around those two parts of my life intersected. And I think that traveling to Chicago and doing this work and seeing the work that's done, you know, so my perspective before was a teacher, and now I've gotten to know community organizers who care about the same kinds of issues, and I've been connected with these wonderful, amazing parents who are changing their schools, you know, individual by individual, group by group. Mm. And so I feel like, you know, myself as an individual teacher and the parents and the community organizers that I've come in contact, it's just really God has been teaching me over my years as a researcher that, Sue, these things aren't separate parts of your life. They're all joined together. And I think that no matter what we do, whether you're an accountant or a teacher or community organizer or, um, you know, a banker, there's just really compelling ways that our faith can really collide and intersect with, um, with all parts of our life. And so I've really, you know, I, I'm part of a church that has, um, for the past few years, really been working on um, not just doing missions and service, but really being embedded in the city of Boston and really working in partnership with other groups to um, tackle some of these very pressing issues in the city head on. Um, You know, whether it's, uh, um, we have the same, very similar kinds of school reform and educational issues that are really beating down our teachers and our families, like like what's happening here in Chicago. And so I think in those ways, God's just really taught me that as I've been on the ground meeting with parents and doing the work here in Chicago and becoming more involved in my own faith community in Boston, and that I've just really found that um, the gospel and my faith um, is, is instrumentally connected to everything else that I do. Yeah, and I'm so glad you mentioned that, you know, because... And I wanted to ask kind of follow-up question. I think for a lot of us that have sort of, and I put this in quotes, secular jobs and whatever, you know, when we think about what does it mean for me to be a Christian in that context, immediately for us, it's like, well, I'm going to start a Bible study or or I'm going to, you know, share the gospel verbally, so on and so forth. But for you, because we're trying to say to our church, as a Christian, there are ways that you live out your faith in your workplace, in that occupation, in a way that it reflects God, the gospel, and the kingdom. So what does it mean for you as a teacher, as someone who works at community organizing? How does your faith impact what you do in such a way that people go, that's Christ, that's the gospel, that's who God is? Like, what, what do you do? What's important for you that, that displays that to the people? You know, so for one, yeah. I'm, not, I'm not so shy about talking about how my faith influences what I do at work. So, yeah. you know, as, as, a, as a new professor... Um, for any of you who have gone to college, the, the university environment is not the friendliest to people who are deeply rooted in faith. And so I'm one of very few faculty who talk openly with students and with other researchers and other faculty members and who kind of pronounce my faith. And so I think that that's one way that I, I do this, that I, I don't hide that part of my life. You know, I don't worry about whether it's going to impact what other people think about me or whether I'm going to get tenure or whether people are watching what kinds of faith-based groups and students that I, um, that I meet with and, and um, you know, work with. Um, I also think that I have a real commitment to cities. And so it's not just what I do from my work life, but it's where I choose to live. Yeah and how I choose to raise my children and the kinds of values my husband and I um, try to promote in the very act of living, you know. And so I think that there are so many ways that, 
that that kind of plays out, that it's not just your work and it's not just where you attend school or where, you know, where, um, but, it, but it's where you choose to live and, and it's where you, how you choose to interact in that community. Um, and, and I think that we often, I mean, for me, it took me a while to understand that there are so many everyday decisions that I make that really influence how people perceive me and, and that really are influenced by my faith if I allow that connection to be there. So I think for many years, I chose to live in places that were fun or that were cool or that were hip or that felt safe or comfortable to me. And I think that I've come to a point in my life where I don't do things out of comfort. I try to do things because it's really guided by a, a zest and a mission um, you know, around serving God and serving communities and, mm. and really trying to make where we live and breathe and work and play um, a better place. Yeah. It's important for us as a church, and I try to remind all of us that a lot of times when it comes to where we live, instead of falling and erring on the side of where it's most comfortable, to ask the question, where am I most useful? And I think that question for a lot of us is hard to grapple with because sometimes it means discomfort and sacrifice and so on and so forth. In a moment, I'm going to ask Nancy. Nancy, are you here? I saw you walk in. Come on. Start walking up towards the front, will you, with your guests? Um, Nancy is going to uh, come on up and, and, and uh, join us in a moment because Nancy is the director of Logan Square Neighbor Association that oversees a number of, number of services, a number of, uh, 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 I guess, Come on up, come on up, come on up, come on up. I'm going to have you join us, okay? And there's another chair. Daniel, do we have another chair? I know that we have three of them. It's Daniel Espada here. Okay. Come on up. Hey. Good to see you. Hi. Good to see you. Okay. Nice to see you as well. Please have a seat. You go ahead and sit in the middle. We have one more chair. Thank you, Carlton. Okay. Thank you very much. Okay. Let's welcome them. Okay. Let's welcome them. Well, we're going to kind of delve into kind of the meat and the heart of your dissertation and what you did. So give us a, give us a bit of a, oh, thank you. Give us a bit of an overview, Sue, of, so as you thought about school systems and, 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 and the struggles that they're having and, and, and the poor quality of schools and the organ and the communities that, that are, they're in and thinking about, well, how do, how do we kind of, begin to work this as we, as we involve community organizations, so on and so forth. Uh, how did you come to LSNA and, and, and find that to be the work that you wanted to focus on? And then give us a little bit of over from your perspective of what that organization was doing that caught your attention about how it was making a difference in the schools. So um, LSNA, I mean, really, it's remarkable that you're in Logan Square and you're connected to this organization because it's not a group that's just caught my attention, but it's a group that's really catching attention all across the country. And so if, you know, I would love it if my church was three blocks away from LSNA. We would be with you guys on campaigns all the time. So I guess, first of all, it's just, you know, this is a very, it's a nationally recognized, prominent organization and, and the reason that I came to know about them, and even in the four or five years that I've um, known LSNA and parents and, and Nancy, um, they've continued to grow and continue to really capture people's imagination. And so I think one of the most compelling things about LSNA to me was that, um, you know, when I was teaching in schools, I realized that while it's important to have really passionate individual teachers, it's not enough, you know? If you have like one, two, <laughs> And all the three, teachers said, teachers, amen. Yeah, you guys know, you know? What, yeah, you know what that's like. 
You know what? You resonate with that. Yeah. 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 It's not enough. Yeah. These teachers, some, you know, move on. I mean, I'm not teaching anymore, so obviously I've moved on. Um, and they get burned out. To, to kind of put that burden completely on individual teachers is not right. And in addition to that, I also recognize that there are teachers who really don't do the job well. Um, and so in order for schools to change, I really felt like there had to be something bigger than relying on school principals mm-hmm. and individual school staff to make the difference. Um, I think ch- schools are big bureaucracies, and to really move and change them requires a big push, um, a big kick sometimes. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Y'all could clap if you want to, yes. Yep. And... and the schools that I taught in and the schools that I know are products of just historical inequality and oppression. And so just underscoring that schools have this disconnect with the families that they serve and often represent just true injustices. You know, the fact that in, in, in many of the large cities that I've worked in, it's more likely for you know a young man, um, a young man of color, to go into the criminal justice system than it would be to go to an Ivy League college. You know, to look at schools where I worked in a school where you know there were no bathroom stall doors on the boys' bathroom. You know, they it wasn't cleaned appropriately and well. You know, um, where they're embedded in levels of poverty that really bring students to school with so many other issues beyond getting their homework done. So, like, these are the school environments that we're looking at. You go anywhere in Chicago and you can find places where there are just really troubled school environments. And so you really can't, when, when the responsibilities around change are that steep, you can't rely on schools to do it. Yeah. I, that's what I found. Um, and so looking at groups like LSNA. I mean, they have a real, they understand the kinds of families and the kinds of young people who live in their communities. They also have a way of understanding how to work with schools and partner with them. At the same time, one thing that's really important to know is that they're a community organizing group. They're explicit about changing the dynamic of power in their communities. They're very, I mean, one of the reasons why Shirley is here, but any other time you go to an event, there's always these, these panels and these discussions are always led by parent leaders like Shirley because it's an organization that really values, you know, building parents as leaders and empowering them. So, um, you know, it's just, this, if these are the kinds of odds that we're faced with, we have to rely on strong community organizing groups that are ready to fight against those injustices and not to... You know, and not to just wait for their turn or, or wait for the right teachers to come into the school, but, you know, be ready to take action yeah. right now. Thank you, Sue. And so, Nancy, this is where you come in. So tell us a little bit about the history of the program that has made such an impact in Logan Square in some of these schools, how it came about, what you guys are doing. So good morning, first of all. And I wanted to say uh, Tuesday night, Daniel Espada is going to be joining our board, and Libby, Libby, are you? Libby Van Opstel, are you here? Maybe not. But she is a member, she's the secretary of our board, and she's going to also be re-elected. So I just want to congratulate this church that out of 11 board members, two of them are from here, which says a lot about who you are. And with us, Monica Espinosa is also going to join us as another parent leader. Um, We started this because we were talking uh, with parents, with administrators in the schools, with teachers, and we were learning more and more about the disconnect between mostly uh, Latino families in our local schools and the the school teachers. And we felt like, everyone felt like that that was wrong. And, And I was thinking when Sue talked about calling the home. And I was the kind of mom that did the other thing. I called the teacher and invited them for lunch. And I remember one teacher said, I don't do that. And I thought, well, that's kind of weird because we really do need to have a relationship going in both directions. So what we decided to do, and it wasn't easy, and it took a year as this decision got made, was to create um, the parent mentor program where parents would be working in the classroom 
and um, uh, the teachers could learn from them a little bit more about uh, the community and some of the values and the culture of the community. And the kids would have uh, their own neighbors in, uh, in their classroom, people that they knew and that they would see on the streets. And I'm not going to say more about that, Peter, because these two women here Absolutely. lived that. Yes. And so, the, but the philosophy was that we knew as a community that it, we needed to do something revolutionary. And revolution is fun, really, it is. <laughs> and so we started, we, we started with one school and 10 parents, and right now on a Monday morning or Tuesday or Wednesday or Thursday and even Friday, there would be uh, about 150 parent leaders mm. in the schools every day uh, working with the kids, except on Friday when they're working with each other. Mm. And they're thinking deeply mm. about who they are in community and some of the issues that they're struggling with and then also learning more. So... Uh, and, and very quickly, that then led to us also creating a tutoring program for kids who are the furthest behind, uh, creating school community learning centers. About a 1,000 uh, families, kid, people, every week come to the schools after school. Uh, the children do art and music and all those things that don't happen during the school day. And there's also extra academic help. And then the parents come in to study GED or English. So we're really, really talking about community schools in a very real, vivid, uh, lively way. Mm. Thank you so very much. And you brought two, uh, yes. two folks with you. So I'll introduce yep. them yep. quickly. Uh, Shirley Reyes is a mother from Mozart School. And her kids have since moved on. But she has stayed and coordinates the parent work at Mozart mm. School. Mm. And Monica Espinosa is a parent from McAuliffe School. Mm -hmm. And I just, I was with Monica the other day when she was being interviewed by a radio station. And it was so interesting to me how, no matter how hard they tried to trick her up, she was really smart about it. <laughs> but, first, but she also yeah. talked about how because of the work that Logan Square Neighborhood Association did at, at McAuliffe, yeah. the whole Board of Education is changing the way that kids are going to eat. I don't know if those of you saw that in the paper or maybe in the school, that there's a new contract and they were trying to get Monica to say, well, I didn't change at home. But she did change at home. Mm. So it is that give and take between the schools. Yeah. So that's, uh, these are the women I brought with you who have the real story. Yeah. So share with us a little bit about how this has impacted you and, and your family. Okay. Hi. Uh, good morning. My name is Shirley Reyes. And like Nancy says, I uh, started at Mozart School as a parent mentor. I know that... We have to, like a parent, get involved in our children's education, and that is what I just did. I started with my son, the last one. He's going to 12 years old now, and he started in pre-K at Mozart. Mm. And as, as soon as I could get into the program I did, I, I asked myself, can I be part of this program? And the coordinator at that time said, yes, you can. <laughs> so... <laughs> uh, it was the, the, my first year I worked as a parent mentor, and it was uh, the most wonderful thing that happens in my life. Mm. Because at uh, the same time that you are helping these children and necessities, you are growing yourself and became a leader and became, they know that you have a lot of things to do and a lot of things to, ways to help the school, the children. It helps ourselves mm. to grow as a person, as a as a leader, as a, as a mother, as a as a head of the house too, because we learn just know things for for our education for to be a better human being too. To know that we, as a, our Lord says, we have to serve to the other ones too. So yeah. this is a great opportunity that Logan Square became with this experimental programs because it came, it transformed the, the lives of the people, of mm. the parents, and helped to the community. I, now I, uh, at that time, I, I was a little, I think I was a little shy, but I don't think so. <laughs> I just didn't get the, the opportunity to, to, to become something that I got inside of me. Yes. So this was the opportunity. And now, at that time, maybe I didn't was. I say maybe I couldn't be here talking to you. See how many mm. people is in here this, this today. Maybe I wasn't able to do it. But now I am not afraid anymore. I, I, I am 
feel secure that I can talk to you and express myself, my feeling, my the job that I do it and the job that I'm proud of doing it now. Today I'm uh, coordinating this program and like Nancy says every year we start like uh, with a training that is not just about what the parents is going to do in the classroom, but it's most about what you had inside like a leader, like that get out, that power that you have and how you can help and and develop and be a better person and better human being. Mm. That is the, what the training is all about. Mm. It's one week of training, and after that, we are set up in a classroom to help the teacher for two hours. And, but like a, I think Zoo was just saying, the Sue started like a one hour, there was a silent two, and she started two hours, three hours. And most likely we spend the whole day in the school because we love what we are doing. Mm. And we, are, we, we don't feel tired, we don't feel bored. We, we, we want to every day wake up with that energy, with mm. that, with that um, thing that you say, what am I going to do today? I'm planning ahead and what, what I can do better or how we can do better power for today. And for, for our school and for our community, because Logan Square is not just working with education, they are working and fighting for many other things like immigration, like safety, like, like um, all of these things that are relating with the families. Yeah. Because if you don't have a house to live with, you are in trouble. If your community is not secure, you are in trouble. And in some ways affect your education of the children too. So. That's right. We became to, to be a whole family to go with them for the better community, for the better life mm. that we deserve. So that is what the program is most likely going about. And I am feel so proud to be part of this and put it the small mm. a small part of my life in this community. I am so happy with what I'm doing and uh, I invite you to be more um, come in and get involved in your school, get involved in your community, get involved in your church, and be together and be just a whole family. If we are together, we do more, we, we became more successful, we became more family. And that is what, they, what we are doing, that is what I feel about. Thank you so very much. <laughs> yeah. Thank you. Sure. Yeah, yeah. Hi, my name is Monica Espinosa. I'm 30 years old. And I want to talk to you about myself before because I think it's very important to know where you come from to see where are you going. So I got here when I was 17 from Mexico. I started living by myself. After six months, my sister had to move to Los Angeles and I ended up living here by myself. I got married, I got two kids, I had to work, 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 work. I never had a chance to go to school to learn English. So it was like really hard for me like to be on my own. After that, I met my husband, we got married, I had two kids, I have a nine-year-old and a 10-year-old and a four-year-old. After that, I felt like I used to work 12 hours a day, Monday through Friday. I, I had like the basic needs met, but I felt, I, I felt like I was, I, I was missing something in my life. I was depressed, I was like tired all the time. And then this chance came when my son had, he was gonna start kindergarten. So I went to school and I saw the coordinator and she saw me and she's like, would you like to be a parent mentor? I was like, who, me? I don't speak, I don't even speak English. You know, I'm not, I'm never finished high school, so how can I be a, a parent mentor? But I wanted to be a volunteer at school, I did. So she's like, Come and meet me. So I did. I, I went and met her. And thanks to her, I'm here in front of all of you, being so proud of, of not just who I, who I am, but about the organization. They opened my, his arms to me. And ever since then, I, I just was like, I, have a, I think everybody has a leader within themselves. It's just, you just have to free that leader. And I'm not gonna be a, uh, I'm not gonna lie and I'm gonna say like, everything is so easy after you do that. Because no, it's not. You do get tired, you do struggle. But you know what? They gave me the tools to do, to do better in my life. Now I have the choice to like be pegged in a corner and cry or be like, I am here in front of all of you. 
I don't speak I don't speak perfect English, but at least like we can communicate, mm-hmm. you know. So that's that's like what's important to me that I'm setting an example, not just for my kids, but for all the people in my community. I try to reach out to them and help them become part of the the school. Not not to be not to be afraid and be like, oh no, I cannot speak to a principal and he's not gonna listen to me. I'm part of the advisory committee. I'm a colleague. I'm part of my LSC, um, and then NCLV program and that's been like I'm like parents put me there I'm not just there for for whatever I'm there because parents choose me to be there and to voice their opinions and to and to whatever they they want to do they just like come and tell me they're like Monica we need to do this I'm not like Let, let's do it because we got the power you know we got the power and I just want to thank Nancy and Miss Shirley here because last year I started like uh, helping my coordinator as an assistant after one year of being a parent mentor and she has helped me so much and I think I have grown so much from the little scared cat that I was before. Now I think I'm a lioness. (laughs) Thank you. Thank you guys very much. Thank you very, very much. Thank you. Guys, can we give them a big hand as as they go? Yeah. Thank you. Thank you. Go ahead and sit, sit. Yeah. Go ahead and sit that way. Yeah. Yeah. As, we, as we wrap up in a moment, actually, today, I told Sue, I wanted us to pray for our teachers, all of our teachers and, and those folks that are involved in teaching, to encourage you. There are some folks among us, you guys, some of you know or may not know, they may not have jobs next year. Um, it's, it's a really rough, rough situation right now in Chicago in the public school system. And Sue, as we wrap this up, two questions for you real quick. One is, I think some of us sitting out there going, hmm, changing an entire broken system one life at a time. Like, really? And what do you say to that? Really? (laughs) (laughs) That's it. I mean, (laughs) I think that the choice really is, um, you know, are you in the struggle or are you watching it happen? And, And I think for me, I got to a point where I think this was, it wasn't even when I decided to become a teacher because I think when I became a teacher, I was doing it to kind of serve the community and and to outreach. And when I began teaching and saw how challenging and hard it is for a lot of these families, I began to understand it's not just about serving, but it has to be about empowerment. It has to be about correcting injustices, and it has to be about building relationships. I think that's one of the beautiful things about LSNA's work. There are groups out there that attack and confront and try to um, you know, break down the injustice. And I think that those, you know, and, and, and LSNA does do that when it's necessary, but at the same time, they want to make a difference inside schools. And so they do that by allowing parents and teachers to work together. So for Monica and for Shirley to be inside classrooms, building these, I mean, they're in the classroom Monday through Thursday for at least two hours a day, all year long, same teacher, same classroom, so they're building relationships with teachers, and they're pushing teachers and parents to kind of reshift their own ideas and beliefs about each other. And so I think actively engaging in relationship is something that a lot of us can value and understand. And I think sometimes that's what it takes. You know, if you don't have time to be out on the street organizing with LSNA, I think it's important for us to all think about how do I build relationships in a way Mm. that I'm engaging meaningfully with other people, you know, so going outside of my comfort zone, outside of my friendships, really understanding what's happening on my street, in my community, and having a heart for people that really extends beyond just the people that are really easy to love and see every day in our lives. Mm. And that's why I think like when you were sharing before we came up, Angie and Chris, right? Mm -hmm. So, I I mean, I think that's just this wonderful example of here's my life, 
but here's how I want to here's how I want to do more. And so, in in terms of the struggle, I think that you know everyone in here, I, I'm sure, would be someone who wants to be part of that. And it's all a matter of you know being connected to groups and to people that can really show us what part we can play in it. Um, because you know, I for one don't want to be someone who stands to the side while other groups and other people like Nancy and Shirley and Monica, you know, and Angie and Chris, you know, I, I want to be in there. And I think that uh, that's what I'm called to do. And I think that, you know, many of us have that stirring inside. And one last question is for you and your husband, what has this meant as your commitment to the city? You have two kids. Oldest is... Oldest is five. Five. My son's going to be two this summer. Okay. So we briefly talked about what it means for us parents to raise our kids in the city and the possibility of sending our kids to the very schools that we are trying to bring about change and reform to. What does it mean for you personally in terms of your family? So for my family, I mean, my husband and I are both people who really love the city and are committed to living and staying in it. And we want to raise children. You know, we, it's ironic because I bet both of us grew up, I mean, I grew up sort of in a suburb. It's kind of like right on the fringes of Baltimore. So it's not, and he grew up in, um, in an L.A. suburb. So we both actually never really lived inside the city. Um, but we're, we're both committed to it because that's, you know, I think that we're really committed to building a community and a society where people across many different walks of life, across race, ethnicity, gender, sexual orientation, like these are, you know, that we're all in relationship and connected and loving and caring for each other. And, and I think that, you know, I don't trust myself to live away from what's going on in the city and to feel connected enough to it to do something about it. And so for he and I, we've made a commitment that we want to, you know, that we want to live and breathe in the same places where, where this, the struggle that we care about exists. And, you know, so we're part of a church like this one that's really committed to a lot of those same kinds of values. And we teach our children from a very young age um, to really think about these issues. So I don't want my kids to grow up in a city and we don't really ever talk about why we do. I mean, I have this, like, short, interesting um, example. You know, my daughter's school around Martin Luther King's birthday um, was talking about the civil rights movement, Martin Luther King. I have a problem with, you know, and this school is not entirely like this, but I have a problem with us only talking about African American and civil rights leaders, you know, around those very particular points in times, you know, and around the heroes that we no longer have with us today. Um, So I, I have a problem with that, but they were having this discussion in her class, and she's five, and learning about the struggle, and a lot of the language in the classroom was about colored people and white people during those days when the, the, the early the struggle was going on. And she came home to me and was just really wanted to talk about it. And we've always raised her to think about, you know, her heritage as a Korean and a Korean American. And as she was talking about this, you know, the olden days, which is how she was describing it, she says. <laughs> She says, um, I, I just got this feeling that, you know, I just sensed that something. And so I asked her, Lauren, do you think that you're white or do you think that you're colored? And she, she looks at me and says, I'm white, right? And, and I, I said, well, you know, I think that if you, if you look at skin color and you talk about people who are light skin and dark skin and you have lighter skin than your, than your friend Zuri. Um, but, you know, Dad and I, we think about ourselves as people of color and we talked about, you know, why and what that means to us and, and how um, I'm proud of aligning myself that way. Um, and she had this look of kind of terror because now she had to recount that whole story that was told to her in school about how people 
couldn't ride the bus, they couldn't eat in the restaurant, they were treated poorly, and all of a sudden she's thinking, ah, the whole time I heard that story, I thought I was the person who was okay. And now she's thinking, I'm not the person who's okay. And so, you know, we went, so we had this like 45-minute conversation, this heart-to-heart. I went to school the next day and told her teacher about it. Or went to next school to kind of talk about it. And when I walked in, her, um, at the end of the day, her teacher said, I have this really interesting story to tell you. We were opening up our day with circle time, this class meeting in the morning. And today I just asked the children if they wanted to share something. And Lauren raised her hand right away. And when I called on her, she looked around the room and said, I want everyone to listen to this. Yesterday, my mommy told me I was colored. <laughs> and, awesome. and there was a lot I mean there was kind of confusion about it because you know like the few white students in the room were like if she's colored am I colored it's <laughs> <laughs> hilarious and then you know the, the darker skinned children in the room were like wait a minute What's going on? <laughs> so I say this because I think that, you know, we live in a society that doesn't have those kinds of discussions enough, yeah, right? Yeah, so, like, I yeah. see a lot of Asian Americans in the room. You know, it's not just for five-year-olds. It was just less than a month ago where one of my students, when I talked about myself as a person of color in a class that I was teaching, came to me afterwards and said, oh, man, that was really surprising. I had really... Never thought, you know, to hear you talk about yourself as a person of color. And I was like, you know, so this, this is like the reality of where we live in. And I don't think that, you know, it's, it's good for us as faithful servants to allow those kinds of misunderstandings and misrepresentations and, and that lack of dialogue and conversation to exist. And so, you know, we, we as a family make decisions to raise our children in a certain way to make sure that, you know, in their school they're supported and, and respected in a certain way. And this is just something that we're, that we're called to. Yeah. Sue and I met for coffee and we're talking about her experience of visiting schools in Chicago. And she said there's some schools where she'll walk in and some of the kids have never really seen or interacted with an Asian so she was in one of these schools, and she was talking to uh, uh, one of the parents or teachers, and uh, Sue speaks Spanish, so she was speaking Spanish, and a little kid walked by, just kind of looking, <laughs> looking over, right, and walked past, and came back, this came back, and, and said, and said, I didn't, I didn't realize you're Mexican, <laughs> and so, so it helps, helps to be able to speak Spanish. Really well, looking like the way you do. At this time, I want to pray for the teachers. Teachers, will you stand? Teachers, will you stand? Yeah. Yeah, we can clap, you guys. Give them a hand. Thank you so very much. Keep standing. Keep standing. Keep standing. Okay? Say, yep. Yep. Please stand. Thank you. Here's what I want to do. Teachers, will you stand standing? And I want those of you that are sitting around these folks, will you stand up and gather around them, okay? And put your hand on and put your arm around them, okay? Put your hand on them, put your arm around them, okay? And in a moment, I'm going to have, I'm going to have Sue pray for, uh, for, for our teachers. But it, if we could just be the hands of Christ and, and the voice of Christ today as you're surrounding um, the men and women that are, that are standing here, you guys, um, it's been a rough year. Many of them are emotionally and mentally drained. Some of them perhaps even wrestling with their faith and, and, and questions like, am I supposed to be here? And I want us to just love them today, be their family today, be the voice of God of encouragement today. So I'm going to give you just a, a few minutes. And here's what I want you to do, you know. Uh, just really short. We're going to give you about a couple of minutes. Really short. If some of you guys that are standing around them could just offer up prayers so that they could hear and other people around you could hear. 
okay? And just speak and pray encouragement into their lives. We'll give you a couple minutes to do that. So as you're surrounding these men and women, will you do that at this time? Go ahead. Dear Father, I just want to pray for, pray for the teachers in this room. Um, we want to lift up these faithful servants who have these big hearts and who've really dedicated their lives, their free time, their resources, day in and day out, to spread this love and faith and this, this sense of community. And for these teachers who um, have these wonderful hearts and, and, and big eyes and vision for what they're doing, um, we, pray, we pray for them right now. We want to shower them with our love. We want to let them know that we care. And we want to let them know that we have faith in them even when a broken system and a broken school district and a country doesn't show them the respect and admiration and love that they need. We understand that it's so difficult for them to do the work that they do and that these environmental factors are making it even harder for them. I pray for these teachers who, as they sit here in this service today, who are unsure about their future, unsure because they don't know if they're going to be able to continue teaching in this job with a city that's facing layoffs and budget cuts. We're looking at a whole generation of teachers who are kind of looking at their jobs and wondering what kind of future they have. And we pray that as the system that's broken does not give them the faith and reassurance that they may want to have and that they deserve, we pray that as a community and as a church and as a, a community of believers and, and brothers and sisters, that we extend our open arms, that we love them, and we try our best to give them the assurances to let them know that their hard work and their love and their faith is, is transforming communities. And that in and of itself, we hope, allows them to sustain themselves to continue this work. Because we understand that if we think about our future and we think about change, we have to think about our young people. 
our young people are the future. And so thinking about education and thinking about schools and our beloved teachers and our parents and our families, this is how our community and our nation is going to rectify some of the injustices and and make some of the changes that we need. And so, Father, we, we lift up these teachers as servants who are playing a critical role in this struggle, who every day don't have to think about what am I doing to be part of this struggle, but every day know that they are called to do this, and we extend our love and our admiration to this wonderful group of people. In your name we pray. We all stand together. I want to give Sue a big hand as well as some of our other visitors. Thank you. I want you guys to know we intentionally didn't talk a lot about policy or specifics of community organization, which I know teachers are very interested in because we want to reserve that time for the post-service Q&A session. So Sue, Nancy, and the rest of the guests that were here will be downstairs in the fellowship hall in about 10 minutes to delve really deep into some of these things that you guys might have just heard a little bit about. Um, Please go ahead and sign up for the dessert night. Let's fill that sheet up and we continue our journey through the book of Acts next week. Have a great week. Have a great, great week. May God bless you as you go forth. Have a great day, you guys.